Uh, and I was just kind of racking my brain saying, good gosh, you know, how do you convince executives that seem to have this deep-seated skepticism about whether the return on a great customer experience is real, is it tangible, as opposed to soft and squishy? You know, how do you convince them? Welcome to the Delighted Customers Podcast. I'm your host, Mark Slayton, and I'm so glad you're here. This podcast is all about empowering leaders to achieve sustainable growth by consistently delighting your customers. We give you practical tips, proven frameworks, and share ways to help you delight your customers. Our guest today, to simply put it, he helps companies impress their customers. He is John Pico, the founder of Watermark Consulting, and a leading expert in customer and employee experience. John has been featured by dozens of media outlets, including The Wall Street Journal, The New York Times, NBC News, and Forbes. He has advised C-suite leaders at some of the world's foremost brands, helping companies capitalize on the power of loyalty, both in the marketplace and in the workplace. John earned his bachelor's degree in cognitive science at Princeton, and holds an MBA from Duke. Today, John joins us to talk about his fascinating new book, From Impressed to Obsessed, 12 Principles for Turning Customers and Employees into Lifelong Fans. Please welcome John Pico. Hey, Mark. Good to be here with you. Hey, thanks so much for being on the show. My pleasure. John, John I have to just say, um, I knew you before I knew you. Uh, <laughs> 12, 12 years ago or so, when I was first entering into the world of customer experience management, I was looking for some help. And I don't know if you, I, I don't know if you know this, but you were a huge help because I was looking for something that could help prove the return on investment of the customer experience. And there it was, Watermark Consulting study on the ROI of customer experience that Watermark Consulting did the research on. So first of all, I want to thank you. Well, I appreciate that. Um, you're not the first uh, CX practitioner who has, uh, has to told a story like that to me. And um, it, it, it always makes me happy to hear that that study uh, was put to good use by so many people. Yes, absolutely. And, and so you've done, you've done all this uh, work in research and customer experience. And what well, can I ask, what made you launch into a customer experience consultancy? Yeah. So, um, you know, my, uh, my first uh, entree into the business world was actually back in college when I was selling radio ads door to door. Uh, the uh, college Ooh. I went to had a commercial radio station that was staffed by students. So it didn't get any funding from the university. Uh, it was purely, um, you know, ad supported. And I went in sophomore year and I was like, hey, I'd like to be a DJ. And they were like, well, if you want anything other than the graveyard shift, um, you know, you need to sell ads. And that's what I did. Ooh. And I actually turned out to be pretty good at it and became sales director of the station. And the reason I mentioned that is because that was sort of my first foray into business. And that's really where I started to pick up on all of these subtle things and interactions that you have with prospects and with customers that 
really exert a very meaningful influence on their likelihood to first do business with you and then to continue doing business with you. And so back then, you know, it really wasn't even a term customer experience, but that's when I started to get this sense of, wow, that's, you know, kind of interesting. And then once I went into the corporate world with my first job, uh, you know, out of um, my MBA program, uh, it was, I cut my teeth in traditional customer service, leading a customer service unit at a financial services firm. Um, okay. and, uh, and then I had the, uh, really the fortune of doing a lot of rotations within my career, uh, service, sales, marketing, even IT, distribution. And it was there that I kind of saw how all the different functional silos of a company really need to coalesce around the customer experience in order to deliver one that really just hangs together in the end from the customer's perspective. Because um, as I'm sure you have witnessed, you know, in your time, that's where a lot of companies go wrong is they don't realize that those functions are kind of working at cross purposes, even if not deliberately, it just kind of happens. Uh, and so um, it was that background, that cross-functional background that made me think, hey, you know, that's really a unique perspective to bring to the market. And I had always been interested in setting up my own firm. Uh, and, uh, you know, th that was kind of what planted the seed was this idea of um, having walked in the shoes of the head of sales, the head of marketing, the head of service, the head of IT, and how that would help me to work with other companies and have some credibility in terms of influencing how they go, go about coalescing their whole organization around the customer experience. Okay. All right. Interesting background. And, um, and so I'd like to start by talking about this provocative opening line in your new book, which says this, if you are aspiring to satisfy your customers, then you are aspiring to mediocrity. That seems to contradict the fundamental business tenet with which we're all familiar, na namely customer satisfaction is key. So why should we rethink all that? Yeah, uh, customer satisfaction, I really do believe is a one-way ticket to the business graveyard. Uh, and the reason nice. I say that is because... Um, Study after study has shown that satisfied customers defect all the time. They leave businesses all the time. So I believe that if you want to derive competitive advantage, strategic advantage, economic advantage from the customer experience you deliver, it is not enough to merely satisfy your customers. You need to impress them. You need to leave this indelible positive impression in their minds that's going to cultivate the kind of repurchase and referral behavior that is really the lifeblood of any thriving business. And so that's why I say that uh, if you really are striving for customer satisfaction, if that's your objective, if that's the brass ring in your mind, then I think you're really going to sub-optimize your overall business performance and you're not going to end up where you want to be. Yeah, n nicely said. Um, and, uh, and so satisfaction is probably not the bar that you want to use to evaluate the success of, of how much customers yeah, love you. Yeah, you know, uh, I, one way I've described it to people is, um, you know, think about your spouse or your significant other. Uh, would you prefer that they be satisfied or would you prefer that they be loyal? Uh, you know, two very different outcomes. Um, and I think that uh, yes. satisfaction uh, is not necessarily loyalty. And that's really what you want as a business is to cultivate loyalty 
um, because that's when people are going to stick around. That's when you're going to get greater wallet share from them. That's when they're going to be less price sensitive. That's when they're going to refer other people to you. Those are all behaviors that you don't necessarily get when people are just hmm, satisfied with what you've delivered. Yeah. Yeah. Well, John, there's a lot of business books on the shelves uh, these days. And, and um, what compelled you to see maybe there was some white space there that wasn't filled in that you, w- you would want to find a book like this from imp- impressed to obsessed and, and write it? Uh, so what always bothered me from like my earliest days in the business world was just how companies subject their customers and also their employees to so many indignities. Uh, you know, I mean, you see it today with customers uh, and the state of customer experience, uh, you know, post-pandemic, uh, people are waiting, what, like eight hours to talk to an airline, uh, you know, customer service agent. Um, people right. are, uh, they're not getting the services and the benefits that they're accustomed to, whether it's you know, at a hotel, at uh, some, you know, vacation spot, whatever it is. And it's just companies, even before the pandemic, for a long time, I just felt uh, we're really engaging in acts of incivility with our customers, making you wait, uh, communicating with you in a way that was ambiguous uh, or unclear, um, not making you feel valued, you know, making you feel just like another revenue source. And that's just on the customer side. On the employee side, you've got all other kinds of incivilities that I'd say are exacted by companies, uh, you know, versus their employees uh, in the form of, um, uh, you know, not paying you a livable wage, uh, mm-hmm. maybe having a boss that is mercurial, uh, that doesn't advocate for your best interests, that doesn't care about your career progression. And so, you know, I see all of these indignities and I would always sort of like say to myself, gosh, there are so many things that companies could do that are so simple, so straightforward, that would really fundamentally improve the quality of the experience that they're delivering to their customers and their employees. And that was really the the thing that, you know, made me want to write all of those ideas that I had down somewhere for other people to benefit from them. Uh, and, And that was kind of the white space that I saw. Um, But the other thing, too, that I would say the white space that I was trying to fill was uh, my approach to customer and employee experience is very much informed by psychology. Uh, You know, I think you mentioned in the intro that my academic training was in cognitive science, and that actually figures a lot into brand experience, because uh, I would argue that how people remember their experiences with a business is even more important than the experience itself, because it's the recollection of those encounters that's going to influence their future behavior. Um, And so that was the other white space that I was really trying to fill with the book, was the notion of uh, how can companies leverage the power of psychology, of cognitive science, to create experiences that people don't just enjoy in the moment, but they also remember fondly long into the future. And I think that's the key to, to long-term business success. Well, let, let's uh, double-click on that on that idea of memory and creating memories um, that are really positive for, from customers. You know, the Gartner uh, definition of customer experience includes the perceptions and related feelings of an experience um, in the whole s- ecosystem that you interact with a, with a client or customer. 
And, um, and so this idea of perceptions, it's sort of um, not necessarily exactly what you went through, but how you recalled or felt what you went through. What do you say about that? Um, yeah. So, I, you know, what I would say is that uh, a lot of companies, they'll obsess over the mechanics of the experience, you know, grinding out the goo, manufacturing the widgets. Um, and that's all critically yeah. important, mind you. Okay. But they place less emphasis on shaping perceptions and sculpting memories. And the reason I mm. view that as distinct from the mechanics is because there are actually ways that you can make customers feel better about an experience that they have with you, even if you don't lift a finger improving the underlying mechanics of the experience. And, and that, again, gets to the psychology behind this, You know how you shape people's views of the world, uh, their interpretations of the experiences go th- they go through, and, of course, their memories of the experiences. Uh, and so, um, you know, that's what I, I think that's undisco- undiscovered country for a lot of organizations is this notion of how can we more effectively shape people's perceptions of their encounters with us? How can we make them remember things more positively? Every company has bad stuff in their experience. You know, it's just prohibitively expensive to peg the needle on every single interaction point. But the smart companies, what they're really good at is sculpting the memories in a way so that you emerge from the experience, remembering all the high points, all the good stuff, while the not so good stuff sort of evaporates from your memory. And that's why in hindsight, you look back on it and you say, wow, you know, I really enjoy doing business with them. And that's going to inform your future behavior, whether you choose to work with them again, whether you, you know, how you answer the question from a friend or a colleague, what did you think of company X? It's all going to inform that. And so that's what I mean by the perception shaping and the memory sculpting. Yeah. And, and there, was a, there was a great example you gave in the book uh, about the perception of control, this concept of the perception of control. I think you used an illustration of, of maybe calling a contact center. And giving them the choice of whether or not they want to wait uh, in the queue or get a call back. Um, could you say more about that perception of control? Yeah. So, uh, you know, let me actually start by explaining the science behind this using a, a, a okay. study that is um, referenced in the book. It was done by a, a USC psychology student many years ago. And he went to his local Red Cross and he wanted to do an experiment for his psychology studies. Um, And basically what he did is he separated blood donors into two groups. Um, One group was the control group. um, And so they sat down and the phlebotomist, the nurse, just basically said, uh, which is your non-dominant arm? And that's the arm that they drew blood from. But the second group, the experimental group, for them, they actually had the nurse ask the blood donor, which arm would you prefer that I draw the blood from? And at the end of the day, they Mm -hmm. interviewed all of these blood donors. And strangely enough, the people who were given the choice of arm said that they both enjoyed the experience of giving blood more than the control group, and they actually felt less pain giving blood. And, you know, this Mm -hmm. is kind of shocking because if you think about it, I mean, the only difference between the two groups is that the experimental group was given the choice of which arm to donate blood from. And you could argue that that is a meaningless choice. You know, any way you cut Mm -hmm. it, left arm or right arm, it is still a stranger coming at you with a sharp needle. 
Um, yet right. it had a really material influence on people. And what the researchers discovered uh, and what they concluded was that the mere act of exercising choice in an experience makes you feel like you have more control over it. And the way we are wired as human beings, uh, if when we feel like we don't have control over our surroundings or over some experience that we're going through, we feel less good about it, less pleasant about it. But if you give people the sense, the perception that they have control over what's going on around them, even though you're not changing the mechanics of the experience, right? I mean, they're still drawing blood from my arm. They're still sticking me. Right. Uh, right. People feel better about the interaction. And then the other interesting thing that the, the psychology student went back and did a second study. And in this case, everybody, uh, nobody had a choice of arm. But with the experimental group, they actually sat them down before they donated blood and they made them watch a two-minute video that described in detail the procedure of donating blood and what the donor was likely to feel both physically and, and psychologically. And here again, at the end of the day, they interviewed all the donors and miraculously, the people who watched the two minute video in advance, they again said, I had a better time giving blood and I felt less pain. And so the researchers concluded there, that was another way to give people the perception of control. And that is by setting expectations with them. Because when I set expectations with you in that two minute video, for example, it gives you the sense like you have control now because you know what's coming next. There's no ambiguity. You know what's on the horizon, what's around the corner. Um, and so when you apply this into a business context, like the one you mentioned, uh, if you look at contact centers uh, where when you call the good ones, I would argue, first, they have the technology that tells you what the approximate wait time is at that moment, dynamically adjusted, tells you exactly what your wait time is going to be. That sets an expectation, right? right? So that's good there. Mm -hmm. But then beyond right. that, they give you a choice. They say, do you want to wait on the line? If you don't want to wait on the line, would you like us to give you a call back when a representative is available? And that makes people feel better about the experience. Again, the calls might not be, uh, that might not be getting answered anymore, any faster, but the fact that an expectation has been set, the fact that you've, been, that you've given me some degree of choice I'm going to feel better about that encounter than would otherwise have been the case. And, and, and the neat yeah. thing, you know, for your listeners to realize is it costs practically nothing to leverage that principle, uh, you know, which is why yeah. I love it. Um, it's, it's magical in its impact, but it, 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 in many contexts, the mere act of setting expectations with a customer, with a sales prospect, it costs nothing, yet it has a huge impact on their likelihood to view the experience positively. Well, that's just what I was thinking is, is and this one in particular, but so many of the suggestions and ideas that you share in your book really don't cost a whole lot for people to address. Um, and this one, you know, I, I, I'll just affirm what you're saying in, in a real life example that we had at, at the bank that I work for is we did a review of the HELOC, you know, home equity loan, a line, line of credit process. And we found out that there was a period of time where between the time the appraisal was was ordered and the time they heard back from us, um, that was dark. Right. And we would get feedback through different mechanisms um, that customers started to write, basically write stories in that dark space. Uh, and the stories were not favorable to right. us. 
as you might imagine. And so we ended up coming up with like a checklist for both the employees to say, hey, these are the things I need to get from the client, a checklist that we sent home with the customers who were interested in a home equity line, and also a roadmap of what, what to expect during the process. The other piece is, you know, there were some issues with appraisers not getting back. And so nobody really took a look at vetting, hey, you know, holding them accountable for getting an appraisal back within a specified period of time. So those are all things that cost us nearly nothing to fix. Just to echo the point you made. But I, mean, I imagine just had a huge impact on the quality of the experience and the feedback that you were hearing from your customers. Exactly. So just to just to validate what you're saying, this stuff actually yeah. works. Yeah. And uh, the other interesting thing about the example you just described, which I think is a really important point for people to come away with is, uh, you know, as you know, having read the book, I spent some time sort of defining customer experience and what that is. Many organizations, right. they think in terms of customer experience reactively, you know, customer experience is when the customer engages us in some way. They call us, they email us, they use our product, whatever, whatever it is, there's engagement that is driven by the customer. But what you just described is what I like to call the silent periods in the customer experience. You know, that home equity loan, that, that complex elongated process where it starts and then there's this black box period where your customer is not engaging with you necessarily and you're not engaging with them because you're busy kind of grinding the sausage right behind the scenes. Those right. silent periods represent tremendous opportunities to proactively engage your customer and help to shape the experience and the impressions they're going to have. And I think that's a really important point for any CX practitioner is to think about the customer experience, not in terms of the opportunities that present themselves when customers request interaction with you, when they engage with you, there are a host of opportunities when they're not engaging with you. And that often makes the difference between good companies and great companies are the ones that are thinking in terms of how do we engage our customers even when they have no need to talk to us? You are listening to the Delighted Customers Podcast. I'm Mark Slayton, your host, and if you're just starting out on your CX journey and need help with CX strategy and roadmap, or maybe you've been on your journey and just need help getting to the next level, I've walked the walk as a CX practitioner and know the real world challenges you're facing. Let's put our heads together and jointly define the problem that needs solving. I'd love to see if there's a way I can help. You can reach me at empoweredcx.com. And now back to the show. So much good stuff here, John. I am excited about getting to this next area, which has to do with the return on investment, um, which I wrote a blog recently called The Holy Grail of CX is, is making this case with the C-suite uh, about the return on investment of CX. And so let's talk about it, the business case for customer experience. Many customer experience transformations can be expensive. They don't have to be, but it's not always easy to measure the direct result. So tell us about your insights on, on this. Uh, so um, this, of course, goes back to uh, the, the study that you knew me for before we were ever right. introduced. And um, right. it's, it's called the Watermark Customer Experience ROI, ROI Study. And uh, 
you know, it's uh, it's one of the most widely cited analyses of its kind. Um, you know, it's been cited by McKinsey and Deloitte and SAP and Oracle, uh, you know, lots of companies. And, you know, it's probably worthwhile to actually just explain for a moment the origins of that whole analysis, because it gets to what you were just talking about. You know, there's a lot of frustration that CX practitioners feel where it's just, you know, they feel like they're kind of shouting into the wind. Uh, you know, you're just trying to make the case. You're trying to convince people this is something worth investing in and you're just not making progress. And I had that, um, you know, I had that feeling back when I was in the corporate world. And then more importantly, when I launched my own firm, Watermark, in 2009, then it became even more critical because I wasn't going to have a firm if I couldn't convince corporate executives that this was something worth investing in. And um, it was really out of that frustration that the CXROI study was born. And I remember very vividly, it was uh, the end of the first year when I launched Watermark. It was the holidays in 2009. Uh, and I was just kind of racking my brain saying, good gosh, you know, how do you convince executives that seem to have this deep-seated skepticism about whether the return on a great customer experience is real, is it tangible, as opposed to soft and squishy. You know, how do you convince them? And that's when it dawned on me that you need to talk to them in a language they can understand. And what I realized is the language that those folks understand is really the universal language of business, which is shareholder value. Because whether you are a public or a private entity, I'd argue that business leaders get shareholder value. You know, that is the ultimate goal in business is I want to enhance the value of my organization, whether it is owned privately, whether it is owned publicly. And so, you know, it was that December in 2009 where I was like, hey, wouldn't it be kind of neat to take a look at the stock market performance of the top publicly traded companies in customer experience, the CX leaders versus the worst in customer experience, the CX laggards. Um, and that was the genesis of the CX ROI study. Um, and now mind you, Watermark didn't pick the leaders and the laggards because we didn't want to be viewed as stacking the deck. So we used third-party research firms that made a business out of creating those rankings each year. Um, but the bottom line is that now, you know, in the, in the, in my book, we've got the latest study, uh, latest version of the study, which has 13 years of data. Uh, and over those 13 years, if you look at the shareholder return of the customer experience leading companies, uh, it outperforms the laggards by an over three to one ratio, which is shocking. You know, you just look at the graphic and it's hard not to look at the graphic and say, okay, there has to be something here, right? I mean, there's something there. I'm not saying that your executives that you're trying to persuade are going to write you a blank check at that moment. But what I find that the CX ROI study does is it opens up a constructive dialogue. It gets people to put their skepticism aside for just a moment and to have a constructive conversation to really explore what's going on here. And it opens their eyes it allows them to entertain the possibility that, gee, there really might be a very tangible ROI uh, to creating a, a better customer experience in our business. Um, and the other thing I would just say about the ROI study is that in addition to the leaders outperforming the laggards by a huge margin, if you look at the pecking order, the leaders outperform the S&P 500 broad market index by a little over 100 points over that 13-year period. 
What's really intriguing is that the laggards underperform the S&P 500 by almost exactly the same margin. And the reason that I think that's a really important thing to point out is because to me, it illustrates that there is not just a prize for delivering a great customer experience. There is also a penalty exacted for not delivering a great one. And so whereas many companies obsess over what's the benefit that we're going to get from delivering a better experience, I would argue that the question that they maybe should be pondering is, what's the cost if we don't do anything? What's the cost if we actually don't improve the quality of our experience? Because you look at that study and what you see is the cost is pretty severe. The companies that lag in customer experience, I mean, they're just like in the basement in terms of shareholder performance relative to the broader market. And no company wants to be there. Right, right. And so if there was someone skeptical about the study uh, or someone who was interested in like many of us who are practitioners at one point or another, or still are, are interested in convincing the board uh, that this is a critical way of determining real value by distinguishing or delivering a, a differentiated customer experience. How would you make that argument? So uh, the, um, the, the CXROI study, you know, sort of uh, at a strategic level, starts to make the argument. I think the next step is to explain to people why is it that the CX leaders are delivering a shareholder return that is so much greater than the broader market and so and so much greater than the, the CX laggards. And the reason is that a great customer experience really hits your income statement in two places, and it's just the right places. On the one hand, it hits your revenue line. Uh, and how does it do that? You know, I mean, what I would explain to people that I'm trying to persuade is a great customer experience cultivates loyalty that creates greater retention when you have when you're retaining customers better. Obviously, it boosts your revenues, but you also right. find that happy, loyal customers tend to be less price sensitive because they don't focus on the cost of a particular transaction. They focus on the value of the whole relationship that they have with you, and when they're less price sensitive you can derive greater revenue from them. You also right. find that happy, loyal customers tend to entertain ideas for other products and services from you. So you get greater wallet share, that boosts your revenue. Uh, and then of right. course, lastly, let's not forget, they love you so much, they refer their friends, their family, their colleagues to you. So you derive entirely new revenue streams from all of those parties. So those are just a few of the reasons why you see the revenue line increase with a great customer experience. But that's only half the story. Because the other thing that you tend to see is that the expense line is either better controlled, if not reduced, with a great customer experience. And I'll give you a couple of examples why. Again, things that if I were trying to convince somebody, I would tell them. Uh, because you're getting so many referrals from your current customers, you don't need to spend as much on new business acquisition, on, on marketing and advertising and promotion. That helps you to reduce your expenses. In addition, mm. because your customers are so happy, they complain less. Uh, and as any, any per person who works in business knows, complaints drive cost. When a complaint comes in, everybody sort of encircles it, trying to divine what went wrong, how to make the customer whole. That costs people's time. It costs money. If you have fewer complaints coming in, it puts less stress on your operating infrastructure, and you're able to deliver a better experience at a more competitive cost. Uh, 
So, you know, higher revenues, better control of not reduced expenses, that's going to juice profitability as a result. And that's going to elevate shareholder value. That's going to drive shareholder value. So those are really the mechanics of what's going on behind the CXROI study. And I think that, you know, the next step after that for any organization is, well, how do I start to personalize it to my business? And that might be a case of, um, uh, of, uh, of illustrating to your executives uh, what proportion of our income and contacts are people that are dissatisfied in some way, that are complaining in some way, that are following up on something that we didn't deliver on for them. Uh, you know, what percentage yeah. of the contacts are repeat contacts? People that are just saying, hey, you didn't get back to me, so I've got to call you. Because imagine if you take just 50%, just 10% of those off the table, think of the impact it's going to have on your expense line. That's an example of a way to quantify it. Similarly, you could start to look at what is the source of your business? What percentage is coming from referrals? Um, and, and, And if you were to increase that by even just a few basis points, what would that mean for your revenues and for your profitability? So those are some examples of how you know I would start at sort of a macro level and then start to build your way down deeper and deeper, getting to uh, uh, metrics that are specific to your business where you can show executives, this is how it can impact our bottom line. Mm-hmm. And create that illustration that's unique to your, your organization. Right. Yeah. Well, I, I love what we're talking about here. There's just some gems there that I wish I knew a decade ago. Uh, so, so hopefully it will be helping some of the listeners. I want to talk now a little bit about um, this idea of personalization of the experience. And uh, where I'm coming from is I had a chance to work with some business banking clients over two years that were part of a cohort uh, we called it the the client experience council, and they agreed to stay with us for a couple of years. And we check in with them period of time uh, over a period of time, like quarterly, and ask for their feedback on how their experience was. We we covered a number of different areas, and we mentioned at one point that we were going like many people in in our listening audience are going through a digital transformation of some kind right now, right? And and as uh, in the banking world, you better be doing something like that, or you're going to be left behind. And so we talked about, got their feelings about the digital transformation. They said, so, you know, we were a community bank, we were a community bank, uh, even though we, we had grown and they appreciated the community aspect of that, meaning don't ever lose the personalization. Don't ever, don't use the technology in lieu of the relationship that I have with you. Because if you do, you'll be like everybody, all the other big guys and we'll leave. And so essentially what they're saying in a nutshell is know me, know me. A consistent, we talk a lot about our, our, one of our missions was, and, and other, other organizations have a similar mission, consistently outstanding experiences uh, to deliver consistently outstanding experiences. Well, consistency doesn't necessarily mean the same for each person. It doesn't mean the same. And it doesn't have to be a a uh, widget for every customer. So you shared an example of personalization and I'm going to tee it up for you, but I love this story. I didn't even know about it. This, um, this, this comp, this 
I guess he was a jazz musician who uh, was really, really good, but wasn't getting traction and decided to go into this, this world of, um, uh, help me out here. He was, he, he, he went into the corporate world with it, right? He, he was actually uh, hired to do scores for, uh, for uh, films. Films. Right. Yeah, and go. that's when he started to see that the music that he was choosing for directors of films uh, it, 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 it was critical to sort of understand their personal preferences, you know, the type of themes that they liked so that he then would present them with ideas that, that he knew would resonate with them. And that's when he started to get on, uh, started to think about the personalization of music uh, to people's tastes. Um, so it seems like something clicked for him at that, at that moment. He's like, wait a minute, I'm just playing this jazz. If I really listen to what these Hollywood producers or whoever is making these films want and their, their, their likes, what their individual likes are, then I can create something that will create tremendous demand. Right. I mean, he realized he was going to be much more successful if he comes to the table with uh, 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 some options of scores for the film that based on what he knew about the director, that the director would be like, wow, you know, I love all of those. Like, how am I even going to choose between them? And what he really put his finger on, uh, and, and this gentleman's name is Tim Westergren, uh, and uh, he's the founder of Pandora, uh, the Pandora streaming music service, uh, sure. which for many years dominated uh, streaming. And actually, its claim to fame is that at one point, it actually held 10% of the US radio market, you know, which was shocking for one player to have that large a slice of the pie. But what, what, what Westergren uh, realized was that he began to pick up on that the types of songs and themes that directors liked, uh, that there was some common uh, uh, attribute that weaved their way through all of them. So, for example, you know, there were there were some directors that uh, that, that 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 sort of gravitated to um, scores that maybe had a lot of percussion, whereas others, you know, were more uh, uh, found more appealing um, things that had a large string component. And so that's when uh, Tim Westergren, you know, founded Pandora and he actually got a bunch of people together to decode what he called uh, the genetic code, really, of hmm. uh, songs. Um, and what they did is they went through all of these songs and they categorized them across a whole bunch of, I think it was like 400 different attributes. Things like, is it a male vocalist or a female vocalist? Is the tempo fast or is it slow? Uh, is there percussion, strings, you know, all of these different attributes. And then when they launched Pandora, uh, you know, for those, for listeners who aren't familiar with it, I mean, this is something that now other streaming services have replicated years later, but basically you'd go into Pandora, you'd say, I want to listen to jazz music. And so they'd start streaming these jazz songs to you. But what they give you the opportunity to do is uh, to press a thumbs up or a thumbs down button to indicate, do you like the song that they're streaming to you? Now, what happens behind the scenes is the songs that you give the thumbs up to, Pandora is looking at the genetic code of those songs. And then it's, it will start to stream to you other jazz songs that have a similar genetic code. Conversely, mm -hmm. the songs that you give a thumbs down to, uh, it's going to make sure not to stream 
songs that have a similar genetic code as those, those ones you reacted negatively to. And so as you continue pressing the thumbs up and thumbs down, what you do is you train Pandora's algorithm so that it really creates a truly uniquely personalized radio station for you. It's not just jazz. It's the jazz that you love, meaning that you're going to hear the songs you're familiar with that you know you already like, but, and this is really the, the hook, you end up hearing songs that, that you're completely unfamiliar with, but the minute they start streaming, you're like, I love this song. What you don't mm-hmm. realize is the reason that you love it is it shares all of these attributes, uh, this genetic code with all of those other right. songs that you had previously indicated that you love. And you know, to bring it back to sort of a general business sense, the power yeah. of that is a personalized experience is a better and more memorable experience. Uh, you know, mm. it has been shown, for example, that when people hear their name uttered in a personal or professional encounter, very different neurons fire in your brain and you remember the experience in a very different way. And that's a very simple example of personalization, somebody using your name. But anything that helps your customer to see that they are not just another revenue source, they're not just another cog in the wheel, um, that is going to elevate the quality of the experience that they have in the moment and it's going to make them remember that experience better in the long run by virtue of its personalization. Hmm. So got, got to love that. And, and tell me, tell me if I'm on the right track um, in, in a, in a business application areas, as, as organizations are going through digital transformations, um, they, they can give some power to their customers and not have the same generic look and feel of the user experience on their site. So, if I want to have the shopping cart on the lower part of the screen, if I want to have an area where I save my favorites on the top, if I want to have my, you know, sort of bookmark the place I go to most, most often, I, I might build in for my customers the ability to personalize their experience that way. Is that a good example? Yeah, that is a good example. You know, mm-hmm. I think there are two ways to personalize. One is by asking your customer what they want giving them the opportunity, as you just described, to maybe configure a web portal the way I want it. But then the other way is to infer what your customer Mm -hmm. likes by virtue of the behavior that that you see them engaging in. Uh, And, um, you know, an example of that might be um, personalized recommendations that appear, say, on your Amazon page. You know, Mark, your Amazon.com page does not look like mine. Uh, because when you go to yours, it's showing some suggested products based on what you purchased in the past, based on what you just browsed in the past. And it's showing a, a whole different array of products for me based on my purchase and browsing behavior. So that's an example of personalization that's not based on your customer articulating what I want. It's you inferring uh, based on how you've seen them in, interact with you in the past. And I think also importantly, your listeners should understand that personalization does not have to hinge exclusively on digital transformation. Uh, Certainly the digital realm opens up some really interesting doors in terms of sensing, capturing customer behavior, likes and dislikes, and then personalizing the experience in the future. But there are lots of interactions in a lot of businesses that are not digitally enabled, but yet you can personalize them. 
Uh, and it's just a matter of making sure that your people uh, stay in the moment and that they, they do something that uh, I talk about in the book, uh, a term that Ritz-Carlton Hotels coined, uh, which is this notion of having your uh, radar on and your antenna up, meaning mm. that you're just always being on the lookout for some piece of information, some articulated preference from your customer that you can make a note of and then use in the future to better personalize the experience for them. Uh, you know, so it's like, Mark, you could, you know, uh, you could tell me that you're a big Boston Red Sox fan just in passing that could come up in conversation. Well, unlikely, but yeah. Okay. What okay. Is, <laughs> wait, I mean, you're in the Delaware area. So is it uh, Washington Nationals? Is that it? Yeah. It's the it's the Nationals and the Orioles, but um, okay. both are All not. Right. Having, so you know, you're a big Orioles and Nationals fan, and you just kind of share yeah. that in passing. Well, you know, if I'm doing business with you, you know, maybe in in the future, I uh, maybe I, I I mention something to you, or I send something to you, maybe a token gift or something that ties in yeah. with that preference that you just articulated. And you were just saying that in passing, but I've got the radar on and the antenna up, and I'm saying. I'm going to make a note of that. There's something there that I can do in the future that's going to personalize my interaction with Mark. So I want to make it clear for your listeners, this isn't just about uh, digitally recording people's wants, preferences, needs, and whatnot. It can be done uh, in non-digital ways as well. Yeah. And in organizations like Ritz, um, people may think that Oh wow! They remembered my name. Oh, they remembered that I, you know, I wanted my towel put out at the pool by nine o'clock, and I like to sit in the shade. And that isn't by accident. Right. It's very deliberate, very intentional, as any good uh, customer experience is. Um, and and the book actually, you know, uh, uh, sort of unveils some of the secrets behind how Ritz engineers that kind of personalization and. Um, but it can be done in very simple ways. You know, just a salesperson uh, taking note of, of something that somebody, a prospect mentions in passing uh, or seeing that somebody got promoted recently on LinkedIn and sending them a congratulatory note. That's an example of personalization right there. Uh, so um, it just, uh, you know, you just have to keep your radar on and your antenna up and pay attention to those things. Mm, yeah, well, well said, well said. Well, let me... Let me just uh, thank you, number one, and for, for, for number one, writing this book. This is a must-have on the bookshelf for any CX professional, anyone interested who's a business leader and uh, who cares deeply about the customer experience and wants to improve it. There are so many gems, and I know it came from a, just a ton of research that you have done over the years that um, you just don't want to miss this. There's so much in there. Um, you, you're going to, if you get it, you're going to put post-it net, post-it notes and, and tags. Heavily dog-eared. It, pages, dog-eared right? all the pages, right? Because there's so much rich stuff. You're not going to want to miss any of it. Um, so for, for our guests, uh, if they want to get a hold of you, what would be the best way for them to reach you? Sure. So uh, the best way would be to go to my website, uh, which is johnpico.com. That's J-O-N-P-I-C-O-U-L-T.com. And from there, you can jump to my company website, Watermark. You could also jump to the book's official website uh, and learn more about uh, the book there. Okay, John, thank you so much for being on the show. It was my pleasure. It was good talking to you, Mark. You too. 
Hey, thanks so much for listening to the Delighted Customers podcast. Be sure to check out the show notes for any resources and links mentioned on the show. You can find those on my website, empoweredcx.com. That's empoweredcx.com. If you're enjoying the podcast, would you please subscribe to it? That way you can get all future podcasts as soon as they're available. And remember, when we serve others well, we make a difference in the world. Save big money when you start your next project today at Menards. Convert your current recessed lighting with energy-saving LED downlights from Fight Electric. They're bright and install easily in just minutes. They also go from regular lighting to nightlight mode with just a simple flip of a switch. Save big on all Fight lighting products now at Menards. Shop our lighting options today in-store and on Menards.com. Save big.